Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Crewlack community. My name is Major Ian Brown. I'm the Operations Officer at the Brute Crewlack Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Crewlack Center, welcome back to the Broodcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. We're especially excited to be able to use today's show for the first of what we hope will be many more presentations in the Middle East Studies Lecture Series. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, Naval War College, Naval Postgraduate School, or any other agency of the U.S. government. With that, I'm now happy to turn the mic over to Dr. Amin Tarzi, Director of Middle East Studies at Marine Corps University. Dr. Tarzi, over to you. Here Good go. afternoon. Uh, my name is Amin Tarzi. I direct the Middle East Studies within the Krulak Center at MCU. I have a very short uh, duty today. All I have to do is say, welcome back to the Middle East Lecture Series. Uh, right now, we do that in conjunction with the Krulak Center, where we are now part of. Those of you veterans, I say, who have been in our lecture series, we started this about almost 10 years ago, uh, doing it thematically uh, for, for those 10 years, with the exception of last year during COVID, uh, we hit a snag. And I just wanted to welcome those of you who have been with us to our lecture series, and this is the beginning of that, that process. We hope to do uh, more of these, whether it will be uh, like this one, virtual, or uh, when uh, the situation uh, gets better in person. And we thank all of the people who have supported us before and who have come here on board uh, to speak with us. And the second thing I want to do is, uh, again, to introduce our new colleague, Dr. Christopher Anzalon who joined the Middle East Studies at Krulak Center uh, this January. And uh, Dr. Anzalon will be taking charge of this uh, lecture, this, uh, his doing. So with that, I uh, I will not even introduce you, sir, but thank you for being here, Dr. Whiteside. And I will switch off and Chris, it's in your hand. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Tarzi. So it's our great pleasure at Middle East Studies in the Krulak Center to welcome Dr. Craig Whiteside, who is an Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College uh, at its resident program at the Naval Postgraduate School in, in uh, I believe, in Monterey. And his research uh, specialties, he focuses on counterterrorism, irregular warfare, and this is what his uh, research and teaching is on. He's also a senior associate with the Naval War College's Center on Irregular Warfare and Armed Groups, a fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism at The Hague, and a fellow with George Washington University's Program on Extremism. He has a PhD in political science from Washington State University and is a retired US Army officer with combat experience in Iraq. Most recently, he's the co-author of a, a very important book of uh, annotated translations of key Islamic State uh, ISIS documents entitled The ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement, published in the United States by Oxford University Press. And his talk today draws on this book as well as two of his other recent research publications. First, or rather second, a report on Islamic State's Diwan al-Jund, or the Department of Soldiers or Soldiery for George Washington University's program on extremism, as well as a co-authored report um, with the same title as this lecture that looks at sort of how Islamic State has changed its operational model, particularly outside of Syria and Iraq. So we welcome Dr. Whiteside. 
Thank you, Dr. Anzalone. And uh, I'd like to congratulate uh, MCU for their new hire. I, I told that to Dr. Tarzi, but uh, I've been a fan of, of your new professor uh, and researcher for, for quite some time following and learning from him. So it's a, it's a privilege and I appreciate uh, the invitation to, um, to talk with you, you all today. Uh, my, our sister, you know, service, college, educational institute, PME, uh, but much more. And I, and I, I applaud you for all of your doing uh, and particularly being part of this, um, not just uh, the Middle East uh, Studies uh, lecture series, but also the Krulak Center's innovation. I think some of the things I'll talk about and how the Islamic State has morphed from an insurgency in Iraq and Syria or Iraq and then Iraq and Syria to a global enterprise has a lot to do with innovation, how it um, changes and morphs its organizational structure, how it utilizes its human capital and how it's always shifting and changing and adapting to the to the strategic environment uh, that it faces. And that's that's something important. Certainly the Marine Corps transitioning. And this is a, a topic that uh, that you are interested in. And um, certainly these are it's comparing apples and oranges. Uh, but there are things to be learned, I think, from the organizational agility that this organization or movement has displayed in the past. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. So let me uh, share my screen, hopefully. Okay, if that is not sharing. Okay, if it is yeah. not sharing. Perfect, thank you. Okay, um, as mentioned by Dr. Anzalone, this is. Um, the title of a, of a co-authored piece, uh, trying to understand uh, this global enterprise. What does it mean? There's quite a bit of debate about that. I'll talk about that in a sec. It's also, let's see if I, oh. it's also based off of, both of these were published in the last month. So they're both pretty fresh. Uh, hopefully lots of new information on, on from these um, papers and been working on both of them uh, for better parts of a year. Uh, before publication. So let's let's look at Daesh or Islamic State's propaganda output. You can see it is declined significantly since its peak of, of 2015, 2016. Um, this is by one of my co-authors, uh, Charlie Winter. Um, so you can see what's a pretty intuitive drop in propaganda. Um, there's a correlation between that and, and its activities, its, its global activities, but also its insurgent attacks, as well as a lack of ability to uh, propagandize about their governance, which is was a was a main topic of, of, of interest to them. So to again to shape the, the background for this discussion, you can see from 2015 in gold significant amounts of output that are coming from the media affiliates in Iraq and Syria and less so elsewhere. And then if you see, it's a little bit harder to see, but in the dark, you can see 2020 more recently and you see more output from West Africa than Iraq and Syria. So that is new, that is a change. And that is kind of the inspiration to trying to understand this global enterprise. However, the little a slight twist. One of uh, one of our colleagues who researches uh, operations claimed by the Islamic State in Naba, their uh, their weekly mat, their weekly newsletter. You can see that the activity in Iraq and Syria still outpaces West Africa by a significant amount. 
followed by Afghanistan um, region, the region in and around Afghanistan, and uh, as well as the Sinai. So these are their, um, and then well behind is Central Africa, but you can see there's some differences here over the last year, uh, but still we have more propaganda coming out from the Af West African province and yet more activities happening in Iraq and Sham. So this tells us that this is a leadership decision to promote these particular provinces that is not necessarily in line with actual activity. So that's of interest of what the leadership is thinking about and also inspires a research question for, for the paper, uh, particularly on uh, the routinization of the global enterprise. You know, how do we measure this influence? And this influence has been seen over the over since 2014, uh, since the the establishment or declaration of the caliphate uh, in Iraq and Syria, but spreading uh, out and elsewhere. Uh, we're trying to understand the influence that it has from West Africa to East Asia, from from Nigeria, uh, northern Nigeria, northeastern Nigeria, those areas, all the way out to Mindanao, uh, as as we understand it. Uh, lots of debates about, you know, how much of these are local affiliates or grassroots movements that have been there for quite some time. And that's, those are truthful. I mean, those are all been there quite some time uh, versus, you know, a coalescing global enterprise of uh, interconnectedness between the, the core and the affiliates uh, on the peripheries. So, uh, the other question that we want to answer is well, why why are su why is there such differences uh, between the activities and really the relationships between the core and many of its affiliates? Once we look deeply at these different provinces, um, they are much more different than they are similar, and that's that's a little bit confusing uh, originally when we started our research. Um, another question really is, you know, what is, what is, what do we mean by centralization? What is being centralized at the Islamic State core and what is not? Uh, one of their uh, most recent senior leaders who was captured and gave an interview said that they were completely decentralized as an organization, which is confusing because of some of the things that I'll show you. So we're trying to figure out the answer to some of these questions. And then finally, a common explanation between this or a common explanation that comes out of the debate between local and global is is this just branding right is this just modern information operations influence operations influence warfare information warfare if you will you know is this just a branding exercise you know that the locals get something out of saying they're islamic state and the core does as well but there's not really a relationship there that's the that's the kind of uh, intimation uh, on there we we came to an agreement as co you know co-authors uh, after quite a bit of arguments between us um, about what how to understand the, the the global enterprise and this is what we came up with and I'll, and I'll explain what what we mean by these particular terms all right um, from an adhocracy and adhocracy is actually an old term comes from Mintzberg in the 1980s uh, and you can see the origins of that in the paper it's not um, it means it's structurally fluid, adaptive to the conditions. Uh, it's got a core team of specialists that are driving the larger enterprise, but there's a significant amount of decentralization out on, on what, and, and so from this instance, it's, it's the affiliates that have aspects that are decentralized. Importantly, there are aspects that are not 
decentralized that are not pushed out to to the peripheries and and i'll i'll highlight what those are what we think those are um it's global because since 2011 since osama bin laden's uh killing by us so again we've facilitated and created opportunities for this organization when we have done things you know justifiably so in in killing people like osama bin laden that has allowed this group to evolve and change in ways that it that it would like to have done but might have been restricted from doing so um and one of those was to go global from a focus originally completely uh in iraq with some interest outside of iraq like in jordan you know attacks in jordan uh attacks uh you know ideas about attacking europe to uh, after 2011, certainly uh, with an expansion into Syria by the Islamic State of Iraq and then um, influencing the, the use of Syria to leverage and get access to other places like Afghanistan and others, you can see them prepping the expansion to global. And how we understand global is as an expansion of the fighting fronts, is the in increase in, in militant activity out on the periphery. Uh, that's going to have a benefit to the core in a multiple ways that we'll talk about. Um, but they became very transactional sometime between 2011 and 2014. Very, very creepy, but deliberate, quite deliberate. And um, and that is that also highlights the dynamics between and the frictions that sometimes occur between global and local, which I'll also talk about here in the future. And then finally, an insurgency. I, I struggled with this and insurgency typically is about replacing a government in a localized context. How to, what is a global insurgency? We've used that term before, sometimes to talk about Al Qaeda. Um, I wasn't convinced by that uh, appellation at the time because Al Qaeda really wasn't interested in governance, creating governance and local governance in the short term. And so to me that is not an insurgency. The Islamic State is different though. I think we understand that. I won't belabor that point, but um, it's much more applicable. The term global insurgency, much more applicable to the Islamic State because they are very much interested from their early roots in Iraq uh, and later Syria on controlling territory, controlling populations. And I'll talk about why that's important to them other than some of the intuitive aspects. So what does globalism do for the core, right? What is, what is you know, this is something that I've struggled with. Why, why expand beyond Iraq and Syria? Why not just focus? They're not doing well in Iraq and Syria right now. Um, they're kind of uh, at a set steady, state opera, uh, steady state of operations. It's not much different, by the way, than their steady state of operations in Iraq from 2009 to 2013. Um, maybe 2012 would be a better better year to talk about. It's really steady state uh, operations there. Uh, so what does globalism uh, do for this particular one? We've seen versions of this map from the Islamic State as early as 2007, 8, 9 in their propaganda films, you know, pictures of, um, you know, the black flag landing in Iraq and Syria, but then spreading uh, a kind of a black wave outwards into, into what you can see. So this is from their propaganda. Um, they've always had uh, the, the, Interest in global is, globalism does have early roots. So there are foreign fighter flows that have been quite uh, famous all the way back to the Sinjar records of 2007, captured records, and certainly the foreign origins of the group 
uh, in general coming from Afghanistan and then coming into Iraq, being foreign to Iraq, but then integrating and assimilating with the local Salafi movements and then becoming the early Islamic State of Iraq in 2000, late 2006. Um, foreign fighter flows have ebbed and flowed in that particular region. Um, you know, after the surge, there was certainly a low point in foreign fighter flow, but it picked up again after 2009, which most people don't realize, but the numbers did start returning, not to what they were in 2007, but certainly uh, much higher numbers than we saw after the during the surge period where it was difficult to, to house foreign fighters for them. Uh, it's always been more about manpower, right? The foreign fighter flow is not just about people who are going to come in and serve as soldiers in the organization. It's about making connections, networking, and the future seeding of uh, a global enterprise. And that's something that we've seen them have an understanding of and an appreciation for in the back of their mind, in their discussions, uh, in some of their, uh, politi their political statements uh, as a movement. And um, obviously, they get this inspiration from Azam in Afghanistan. They're 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 trying to replicate it um, in their ways and methods, but certainly coming out of Iraq and Syria, and then uh, expanding that out. Um, like I said, in Iraq, they had to deal with a lot of internal tension in their organization between the the foreigners and the uh, the locals. And uh, largely, the locals won won out uh, due to some help from us. We uh, attributed quite a few of their foreign fighter experienced leaders, uh, but nonetheless, they've also had experience with this globalization as early as 2011 when they sent in their initial, um, you know, seed corn into Syria under uh, Jalani, and who is a former uh, Islamic State of Iraq uh, leader. And, um, you know, they've experimented with how to uh, how to expand to a global level as early as that. Uh, if you, you know, in Syria, in that particular instance, they send in locals, they send in Syrians. Uh, but I don't think they, you know, their lesson learned from that was that the, the those Syrians went, um, you know, they went a little bit native. Uh, and I'll talk about their their experiences with that. So they they've experimented with different models of expanding globally. These, these expansions uh, and experiments were also replicated in Afghanistan and later in Libya uh, after um, uh, Gaddafi is, uh, is deposed. So what does the core do for these particular uh, Walaya? In the article, we kind of lay out a lot of different things that the core gives to local affiliates, if you will, the Walaya, the provinces, as they call them. And um, military experience is that they've gained in Iraq and Syria. I'll kind of try to demonstrate that through um, through a couple of slides here in the future. But just in general, military um, expertise, the translation of that and the transmission of that is, uh, is a value added for the provinces. So this is much more than this branding exercise idea. This is about the transfer of skills uh, through advisory efforts. And there's different advisory efforts. I'll, I'll talk about that briefly, but just say that they're, they're, doing, they're experimenting in different advising efforts, much like the United States is, much like uh, Iran's IRGC is in different contexts and environments. You know, how do you do it during COVID? How do you do it uh, in areas that have political restrictions on your advisors? 
Um, so they're, they're experimenting with different ways of advising and transmitting this military expertise. Uh, they also do some leadership. Uh, interesting that media and financing is, are, are other core areas. And then finally, ideology. This group has its own distinct or unique um, interpretation of, of Salafi or Salafi jihadism, if you will. And they are very keen to exporting their brand of that or their subversion of that to um, to these affiliates and making them. Um, and that's a tough sell in some aspects. I'll talk about some failures that they've had, but also some successes that I think you can see. Okay. Um, and then I'll talk about a little bit more this this idea of the adhocratic nature, the idea that a lot of these relationships are different from the core to the different provinces, right? So um, let's talk about this in a little more detail. So we came up with three types of expeditionary advising that they're currently doing, and I'll try to give you some examples of each. Uh, remote support. So in areas where they have not developed uh, relationships and have distinct members that they've cultivated from local areas, Mindanao comes to mind. Uh, we don't, even though there are uh, folks from the Maute Hapalon, uh, particularly uh, the Maute's, the Maute clan uh, had spent time being educated in the Middle East. There's no evidence that they actually have ever crossed paths or um, that they, they had to be remotely connected. And the relationship was largely remote through, uh, through the internet, but uh, conversations, uh, encrypted communications between them. And so we saw them develop uh, some remote support, uh, even claims of foreign fighters by the Filipino military. Uh, the foreign fighters tended to be very regional. Uh, very regional foreign fighters, if you will, uh, very little travelers from the Middle East, which was was reported early on, really did not pan out. Nor nor uh, were the bodies that were found in Marawi after the uh, the five month siege were there um, foreigners that were from that were not outside of the region. So that's we see that as an example of this remote support um, for uh, in theater. You could, they have different varieties like we do of advise, assist, and accompany. So these are things that our CO teams or uh, even our um, force recon, other special operators, and even regular forces are doing in th theaters like Iraq and Syria today. They do the same thing. Uh, we've got evidence that in West Africa, they had visiting teams, most likely from um, the Maghreb, the nor North Africa. They've come down to the uh, West African through the, the normal um, routes, infiltration routes, uh, back and forth across the Sahara. And you see the um, integration of, I'm sorry, the uh, advisement of the group. Uh, there have been reports of them accompanying them into combat against Nigerian military and giving them feedback. Most famously, uh, in an article um, by a, a French reporter who was able to interview some ISWAP uh, defectors, said that the, that the Islamic State's advising team actually went into combat with them 
and told them that they were suicidal. They were, that their infantry tactics at the basic level were, you know, basically frontal assault. And you know, what they did was pull them back into secure bases and retrain them on things like maneuver warfare, flanking, you know, basic infantry tactics that they've learned in in uh, combat, of course, uh, but were able to help improve the effectiveness of the uh, the West African province. And then finally, the, the other model, which they've learned in Iraq, certainly they applied in Syria. We see it in Libya as well. And to a lesser extent, I think in Afghanistan was the integration of experienced jihadists directly into the ranks. So a little bit of a hybrid of locals and foreigners. Again, the Iraq model uh, with its own tensions. The probably the most prominent example of that we highlight is uh, Abu Nabil al-Ambari, who's a longtime jihadist leader in Iraq, rose up through AQI, and then later the Islamic State of Iraq, was recently, most recently in 2014, part of the conquest of Samara and Saladin province up into Tikrit, and was responsible for the Spiker massacre. If you're, if you're familiar with that, you can see him on the actual Spiker massacre videos. But he was sent from Iraq and Syria after the conquest, as they call it, to Libya to actually take over what they considered to be uh, a failing uh, uh, province. Uh, certainly, it's a province that has kind of nosedived for them. And he was killed in a U.S. drone strike in, in Libya itself. So a, a really prominent example of a senior IS Corps leader actually getting sent forward uh, to take over a local affiliate. Um, and so leadership something I'll talk about as being part of that kind of the core Wallaya tensions. And that's where we're at here. So, you know, one of the arguments against the idea of a global core integrating, influencing local affiliates that have had long histories themselves is that there's going to be some tensions here. There's going to be things that don't work. There's going to be, um, you know, aspects that fail, frankly. And that's something to think about from the innovation perspective, right? From the Krulak Center's interest in innovation is certainly this idea of experimentation and trying different things and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And, uh, you know what I what I think is is important to highlight is that there's really no master plan here, right? It is, it is an autocracy in the in the sense that they're very pra practical, pragmatic, and speculative. They're willing to try things and and see if they work. If they don't work, they try something else. But what works in one place might not work in another, and vice versa. What might have failed for you before is something to still try again in in another place. Um, and so that's that's something to think about. Uh, one thing I've focused a lot on is their leadership management. So of of their affiliates, and you can see, to me, uh, much more failures than than success. Again, this is this should be expected that folks in Iraq and Syria don't know what's best for people in West Africa or in East Asia, right? That there would be any more than you know U.S. military folks adapt easily to different cultural contexts. Let's say in Ambar or uh, in Kunar, right? So these, these are, it's difficult for anybody to do. It's difficult for them to do, even though they might even share an ideology with uh, militants in East Asia, uh, all the way to West Africa. Um, leadership's been the, the most difficult, um, you know, 
the most the the bar that they've had trouble getting over. Uh, on the left, the picture on the left of the the Maute Hapalong crew that got killed in Marawi. That's something they, they felt very strongly about leading the uh, the effort into Marawi and and what they plan to do there. But if you contrast it with Fallujah from 2004, um, there's pretty good evidence that Zarqawi was you know once the once the second battle of Fallujah starts, then Zarqawi is not allowed anywhere near Fallujah. That um, they're using couriers to, to um, you know, keep him informed. But he's outside of the battle area, and he's able to obviously, you know, live on and continue the uh, the growth of this organization uh, from there for another two years. Um, that does not happen in Mindanao. Both the, the the leadership is largely wiped out, and the one leader that's able to get away is is uh, Abu Dar is killed a few months later by the Philippine military. So they haven't had uh, some pretty catastrophic leadership losses. And that's something that um, <clears throat> I know that the Islamic State has talked a lot about in its own internal documents. You know, One from 2009 talks about the centrality and importance of keeping leaders alive and carefully protected and isolated from clandestine insurgency. Uh, the middle picture, Shakal, who supposedly was killed today. So this... Uh, um, in an interesting tie to the talk. Uh, so Shakal, the, uh, the the original charismatic founder of what we know as Boko Haram, but um, he was appointed the leader, and then the Islamic State replaced him uh, with um, Abu Musab al-Bernawi, and then um, and then someone subsequently to that. And now uh, there's a lot of flux. It, it's caused a split in the organization. Uh, which is not their first split. It's the second splinter, uh, which is a pretty good record uh, considering their ambitions. But nonetheless, they have had uh, failures, and this is one of them, their, their ability to manage. And that's something that's unique to charismatic leaders like uh, Shikau. It's very difficult to control. Uh, he's not adopting all of the Islamic State's uh, methods or manhaj, and he's, um, he's, he's quite unpredictable and... Um, that's that's difficult to manage as a, as a core element, and then man, managing uh, a really uh, unpredictable leader at your at your affiliate. They tried replacing him, and that just caused a split. Uh, but with, if if the reports of his death today are true, that would be that would be a bad thing for all of us because that's gonna that could allow the group to. Uh, reconsolidate in West Africa and cause even more of a problem than than what I showed you earlier. Uh, finally, on the far right is their greatest failure to me, and that is, you know, uh, Muhammad al Jalani was a Islamic State emir of Mosul, their their most important um, urban center uh, prior to the caliphate being established, and was a trusted agent they sent into Syria to to kind of advance and help their expansion into Syria. And they were just, you know, probably so uh, immature and so uh, unexperienced in the in the idea of expansion that that uh, he kind of went rogue. And you can see him here, doesn't look like, uh, you know, a Salafi jihadi. And uh, he's really trying to break that mold. And again, he's someone who's come up in the Islamic State. He's got more time in the Islamic State than a lot of other people in the organization today, and he's no longer in it. He's broken from them. He also broke from Al Qaeda, um, and is trying his own version of 
of, of an insurgency against uh, the Assad regime. And that's something I think they've learned from and tried to work on. Correction of methodological areas is, is one area they've seen some mixed success. Um, and one area, um, looking at the Shikau and West Africa province and, and what used to be Boko Haram, uh, the use of child soldiers or women soldiers um, have, they've, they've had difficulty trying to get orga, uh, their affiliates to toe the line on what the Islamic State considers to be uh, proper religious uh, use of both of those uh, sources of manpower. So that's one example. Uh, on the plus side, you see the Islamic State's Khorasan province attacking Hazara uh, minorities in Afghanistan, and that's clearly uh, an ideological aspect that is transmitted. I mean, not to say that it wasn't there before. These are the typical arguments of local versus global, but um, you know, attacks on women's school that recently happened in Afghanistan, uh, blamed on the Taliban, but I'd be really surprised if it wasn't Islamic State Khorasan, who has been more readily adaptive to the ideological, um, you know, ideas and uh, methods that the Islamic State has, has done in Iraq and Syria. They're genocidal campaigns, clearly genocidal campaigns in Iraq and Syria, uh, and exporting that genocidal campaign to Afghanistan. So we'll see, and you can see some of that in West Africa, uh, with uh, the ISWAP, but but not so much. Um, and then strategic direction, just you know, a constant advisement from leaders to leader on what the proper strategy should be in these particular contexts. Again, that's fraught because you have outsiders telling locals how to be good insurgents, which is something that kind of runs counter to what most of us know and think. So they're bucking. Um, some conventional wisdom there. Okay, um, that's enough on the like the theoretical framework. I'm just going to give you a couple examples of of the body of work that they use to kind of export what they're exporting, right? So one is leadership tactics. If you read, uh, this happens to be one of the chapters in our book, but it was also found in a leadership academy in Mosul by Rukmini Kalamaki, who's a New York Times reporter who who got a lot of documents out of Mosul 2016 and. You know, she she happened to visit a leadership academy, and one of the things they're teaching their own emirs in 2015, 16 is this leadership pamphlet from 2007. Right, the person who takes over after Zarqawi, along with Abu Umar al Baghdadi, he's he's the war minister, and he's he's talking to his commanders in the ways that they can, uh, largely in pamphlets that are distributed online or in person to to soldiers. But once they're able to create a state and institutionalize like a military structure. Um, so this gets to that um, adhocracy, that's the, the ability to expand and contract based off of strategic conditions. These are some of the things that they're teaching, right? Their leadership lessons from 2007, right? The, 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 um, the College of War, as Mao would say. Um, this is that structure that I mentioned. Uh, this is in the Department of Soldiers uh, report that was with uh, George Washington Program on Extremism. Just came out last month. Some research we did based off of ISIS files that were uh, taken from uh, Mosul by uh, the reporter I talked about. And this is our conceptualization of what it looked like. This isn't necessarily how they divided it up, but you know you can see some pretty familiar you know, functions of a military administrative department here as far as, you know, not just managing special skills, but logistics, leadership, the headquarters, if you will, 
and uh, administrative stuff, records, who's who's who are their soldiers, how are they are they getting paid, those kind of things, and then uh, human resources. How do we indoctrinate them into? How do we make them into soldiers? How do we train them in basic training in camps? Quite a few camps that they had. You know, they had created an order of battle. Some of this is certainly a little aspirational as far as brigades and divisions. I think the numbers are quite smaller than what we understand, but this is the structure. They fought on fronts. They fought in distinct units. They even had, um, you know, different types of unit foreign fighter units because of language difficulties that they were able to integrate into more uh, conventional style units. Uh, you can see the different styles of units that they had over on the left um, again showing the this this adaptiveness and um, you know creating these things on the fly like these these organizations existed for two years maybe and some of them probably less than that uh, and then they were back to uh, insurgency universal insurgency if you will um, something to think about when we think about this something I brought up earlier about centralization versus decentralization, you know, like any military, they have to control the violence that's, that's going on. They have to control their people. They have to lead their people. And so there's a lot of administration goes in there. This is one of the ISIS files that, uh, or an example of ISIS files that we have. This comes from, um, I'm in Altamimi's archives, but it shows you um, the different types. And then, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the foreign fighters who's in a particular um, foreign fighter battalion, but that is then piecemealed, if you will, that battalion was working with more of the local conventional forces in um, the Caliphate Army. So uh, a little cross-leveling, if you will, of the different forces based off of needs and um, at the particular time. This looks pretty conventional when you see it. It's almost humorous. This is what their structure looks like in a battalion, the, the battalions that I was just talking about. Uh, but what caught our attention was that there's a Sharia advisor down at the platoon level. If you can imagine a Sharia, you know, a political advisor, a U.S. government political advisor at the you know U.S. Marine Corps platoon level, then you can understand the shock that we had when we were you know going through these relatively, you know, these diagrams exist in every military, but but to see that made us look really hard, and, and it, it kind of appreciates one of the aspects of the of the group that is not decentralized, right? This doesn't necessarily look decentralized when you have a conventional uh, structure like this, but that they have ideological components cross-leveled into the very uh, basic fighting units they have. Um, I was involved in a release of interrogation files for the current leader of the Islamic State, uh, El Maula, in you know, we can see as early as 2007, when he was the Sharia of Mosul, that he was working to integrate these advisors all the, into different of the stovepipes. They were quite stovepipes back in, in 2006. But by 2007, they're actually cross-leveling. They're putting Sharia advisors in each of the departments. So the security departments really, which were hitmen, you know, assassinate people who, walk, who went around uh, assassinating political figures, police officers, et cetera, in Iraq during this time period. That they felt the need to put Sharia advisors in there, um, Sharia advisors in the media, because the media is so important. Uh, another aspect of the group that is not decentralized is, is that media. And so you see the cross-pollinization that we see today in their, in their structures. 
Um, again, emphasizing the autocratic aspects of it, the constantly evolving uh, structure and how uh, the relationships between different elements within the, the organization. Why have a Sharia advisor all the way down? As best we could understand what their role was from the documents, as well as what we see the group talk about from a leadership perspective. Uh, certainly, it's a group that I would put up as one of the most ideological that we've seen uh, in studying, you know, militant groups or even armies. Um, that might be, you know, not a shock to some of you, but uh, to be honest, there are quite a few people who say that, you know, the leadership adopts the ideology to outbid other groups, but it's really just, it's quite cynical. They don't really believe it. You know, we, we don't believe that analysis, right? That's made by some pretty high level scholars uh, on uh, civil war and militant groups, et cetera, terrorist groups, terrorism. Um, they, they want their soldiers to be ideological and they, 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 they really put a lot of effort into, into integrating um, people who can teach them so really non-soldiers, but uh, attached to them. And we saw evidence in Iraq and Syria where even if, if, they, were, if they didn't have qualified individuals to do it, they would assign that to local, um, local uh, imams to go out to the nearby fighting unit and to lead them in prayer and to talk to them about the importance of what they're doing. Uh, it also controls war spoils and booty. So there's an economic aspect to it. There's a lot of uh, you know, they seize a lot of weapons, they seize a lot of money, they expropriate property from local uh, apostates or people that they're conducting genocide against, Yazidis, Shia, and that becomes revenue for the organization. So that has to be carefully done. You have to make sure that your soldiers aren't corrupt. If they're actually handling the money, it's something the U.S. military, you know, um, does in some cases, I say civil affairs folks, but we, uh, we've had experiences with corruption as well. So that's one aspect of this. Um, who, who to apply violence to? Who's a legitimate target of the Islamic State? That's not as expansive as everyone thinks. Certainly you have to be very careful when you're looking at uh, Sunni, Iraqis, Syrians, or uh, Nigerians, where, whatever it is, you have to, the application of violence against your own in-group is something that needs to be carefully controlled. <clears throat> and then talking their media, you know, again, one of the the benefits this group has is not necessarily this brand, the flag, the videos and all this other stuff. It's the experience of the people who are in the organization that then can transmit, um, you know, kind of lessons learned. And, you know, we've done this in the past and it didn't work. So just to give you, I mean, their, their recent, I mean, he's dead now, but um, Al Muhajir, who was the spokesman after Adnani was killed in 2016. So this is 2017. Was a, was a veteran of Al Qaeda in Iraq's media organization, which to them, it's there's no real distinction between uh, the groups. They have come and gone. Uh, largely, prison time is the only time they've been gone, but they usually go right back to work. To give you an example of that, I mean, as early as 2005 and seven, I found this in the archives at West Point. You can see the structure of their media is quite sophisticated for 2005. This is Al-Qaeda and Iraq's media section that then becomes the Islamic States in 20, 2006. The leader of that uh, was, uh, whose picture is there, that's his uh, death picture, but uh, was killed in 2016. He was a two-time media leader. So he was a media leader 2005 to six, and then again from 2009 to 16. So there's continuity and experience here that they are then using 
to um, one of the things they do with the media is they take the affiliates media products, bring them back to the core through encryption, through um, you know the internet, and then they polish it up, make it professional, and then and then release it for them or send it back to be released, depending on the affiliate. And you know, um, I know one of your professors has worked a lot on this, but usually the the first sign that there's actually a relationship between the Islamic State core and one of its affiliates is a dramatic increase in the in the quality of the propaganda. And so you can see from the from the adaptive nature of the organization that it can go from a fairly um, standard structure here. My favorite is the archives, which is still still alive and kicking in the age of the internet. It's a you know, large internet archive now, but originally it was you know on you know hard drives and and those kind of things. Uh, to something like this, still very centralized. All the media is, is cleared at the central media department, the Dewan, but uh, with specializations, they have different specialized uh, centers. Some does media, radio, uh, foreign news, translations, songs, uh, but also uh, at least in 2016 was individual pro provinces so you can see like in red all of the syrian provinces that they had and some that were blended syria iraq provinces um and now it's just syria so now they've they've morphed yet again this is a more updated conceptualization of what the the media department looks like a lot of security integrated in along with religious figures into the normal media functions and that's to keep them safe in the clandestine environment of returning to an insurgency. And my, to my best understanding, which is certainly fuzzy, of what their media looks like today is, is even different from this. So it's changed again since 2018 from necessity. Uh, it's, it's much simpler, but certainly some of the same uh, aspects and principles of security and um, you know storing information. They really see the, inf the media unit as an information broker as opposed to simply just a propaganda platform. Okay, I'll finish with a picture of the West African province in action, you know, um, with their continually improving uh, military skills. Again, that's brought to them uh, by the core, by these uh, mobile advising teams that have been sent out from the core along with money and along with uh, the media assistance that they've given them and, um, and, the, and the guidance that they get from the core. And you can see um, Dr. Anzalo and I just threw a, uh, this comes from his Twitter feed, which is always a great source if you're, if you're interested. Uh, so I'll, I'll end with, with uh, that and, and open up for questions. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Whiteside. So um, yeah, we'll open it up for questions now. If you would just um, type it in real quick and then we'll go through them in order as many as that as we have time for. And, and I can bring up slides if you're interested in me uh, re-presenting a particular uh, slide, et cetera. I can bring those back for discussion. Hey, Dr. Angelone. Um, I actually yes. had a quick question while we're uh, we're waiting for folks to enter in the chat. Um, 
Dr. Whiteside, that that organizational chart you had with the Sharia advisor um, sort of directly attached to the units, uh, it reminded me very strongly. I, I happen to be re-listening to some Tom Clancy lately, and it reminded me of the the Zonpoli that the Soviet Union, you know, used to have attached as a as you know the political advisor to all of its units. And I, I'm fairly sure that the uh, you know the PLA has a certain level of uh, indoctrination. Um, you know, as part of, you know, as part of their TO, as part of their daily thing in a way that the U.S. military is not. It, to your knowledge, is there any any direct connection between um, ISIS's decision to have this sort of theological Zonpoli attached, or is it a sort of more a coincidence? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a question that we, that we had as well. Uh, can you see the uh, diagram that you're referencing? Can, is that yeah. shown or yes, okay? Uh, just for everybody else to reference. So thank you for the question. We found it pretty unique. It's not that. So some other past uh, historical examples, which I talk about, uh, we talk about in the paper. Um, the French Revolution actually had uh, um, something about members on mission. So they would actually send because they were revolutionary and they were highly ideological. Would also send. Uh, political advisors into the field with the French, uh, you know, revolutionary forces, uh, either both pre and even after Napoleon kind of rose. And so you do see some examples of that from an ideological perspective. Certainly the Russians had commissars, but they did not go all the way down to the platoon level as we understood. And they were more they probably served more as minders in in those instances than actual um, you know, teachers of of the ideology, but um, you know, I think that that might um, that might have changed. Uh, the other one was the Nazis. You know, a highly ideological military that's involved in you know an invasion of Russia that's largely designed to create living space for the Germans. It's, it's genocidal uh, against uh, the Slavs and the Eastern Europeans, and they didn't even feel the need to have advisors into different areas of the Wehrmacht. And so that's kind of surprising, except that they had the advantage of being able to indoctrinate citizens before, for about 10 years before the war. Uh, the Islamic State, I think, you know, getting to your question, I think the Islamic State is kind of inspired by their own feeling that the majority of the forces that have been part of this Department of Soldiers, the Caliphate Army, uh, minus the foreign fighters who are pretty ideological, most of them are not ideological, right? They're just people who joined after the conquest in 2014. And so some of the files we went through, they were literally just unemployed people who were like, this is this sounds like a good idea. I'll join the army and make some money. And it turned out to be probably a very bad idea on their part. But uh, nonetheless, the Islamic State's rapid expansion, I think is what inspired them the most. I think this is their idea um, because we can't find it in, um, you know, Al-Qaeda, I don't think has this particular idea. I could be wrong in that, but I'm never, Al-Qaeda has rarely gotten to this stage of having, you know, armies, right? Uh, well, I don't know if they've ever got come to this stage, uh, but it might be interesting to see in Yemen if they actually have um, Sharia advisors down. But as I understand it and going through the files, I think this is something they innovated. They came in and said, you know, we got all these new soldiers, what do we do? How do we make sure they understand the ideology that we're fighting for? How do we make sure they understand the rules of 
of uh, war, uh, war spoils and booty. They have very specific rules on those. And the answer is to have a Sharia advisor, which in some ways is a little bit of a JAG officer from what we could read in the thing. They, they were also like JAG officers saying like, you know, investigating. Uh, so a little bit of like a, you know, investigators of misconduct. Uh, and then they also, in some cases, had like a co-commander style, like on the letterheads of their of their bureaucratic paperwork, they literally have a commander and then the, the advisor as a signature box. And so I thought that was really interesting too. I think some of you could see the significance of that. Does that, does that answer your question, Ian? Yeah, no, it does. I'm also now just thinking, you know, that even ISIS has, you know, paperwork with signature blocks on it, but that's a different line of inquiry. <laughs> um, uh, again, for our audience, if you have any questions, uh, go ahead and throw it in the chat. I know we are approaching an hour here, but we want to give everyone an opportunity to talk to Dr. Whiteside. Dr. Anselm, Dr. Tarzi, did either of you have any, any questions you wanted to give him? I actually have I have one. Um, in your research on on the captured ISIS files, Islamic State files, do we have any sense, or did you get any sense of how the core IS core leadership in in Iraq and Syria decided or decides which affiliate branch, regional affiliate branch, or or province that it invests more in? So, for you know, we know that they in the past uh, invested quite a lot in the Libya branch and sub-branches. Is that a geographical issue? Some are easier to send people, advisors um, and such too, or, or is there another, you know, what are the criteria? Do we know anything about that, how they decide, the core leadership decides which branch or, or province to invest in? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, you know, the problem with the, the ISIS files that we found, they're more like what Ian was talking about. Um, they're more they're more what Ian was talking about and less some of the those strategic decisions. You know, I've seen lots of strategic documents from the group, but I've never seen one, unfortunately, that does what you're saying. I'm not sure it would, you know, I'm not sure it wouldn't be outdated within uh, a very short period of time. So we, we really don't have evidence on how their prioritization. But I think, um, you know, my gut feel is again, there's no, there's no master plan. One of the best books on ISIS, I think that that exists, is um, is Brian Fishman's um, master plan, and he kind of uses an Al Qaeda master plan of how they were going to take over the Middle East in ten years or something like that. And I think it's 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 more of a kind of a book slash. Um, you know, it's a little bit book marketing. It's a little bit of like, wow, they came pretty close to, to doing this, but I don't think they have a master plan. And I've seen some pretty good critiques saying like, these people don't actually have like a, they don't have a grand strategy. They don't have a national security strategy like we do that says, this is what we're trying to do. This is this is the the strategic end state at, a, at the global level for the United States. And they have, an, they have a, an end state, but like how they're gonna get there is so fluid. It's so, it's, it changes so often that I, I really, it, it's why we, we settled on this concept of, of, of an ad hocracy, which I fought for a while within our own kind of research team here. Cause I'm looking at all these structures, right? I'm looking at all of these organizational charts. I look, you know, look at how they change from time to time. And I'm thinking like, this is a hierarchical, highly centralized organization 
that controls so much of the aspects of their fighters' lives, what they're doing, who they're killing, how the money is is spent. You know, like you're saying, who who are they sending money to? Like it's quite surprising they send money outside of the affiliates where they kind of lose control of these kind of things. So you know, I've always struggled with that. Don't don't really see a lot of evidence to that. But the autocratic aspects of it are just seeing how they experiment and fail a lot. So like, um, you know, they're really kind of ham-handed efforts, although somewhat successful to do external operations in Europe is a good example. That might've been, it's really hard to pin that down into a leadership decision outside of someone on their their kind of sure council, their delegated count, uh, committee at the time. Adnani, I'm sure was pushing it. But at the end of the day, it's probably these individuals who are trying things. And, you know, that could have actually really backfired. And I argue that it backfires on them spectacularly in that instance, because the global coalition forms pretty rapidly and gets a lot of support after there's external terror operations in Europe. Um, so they, they fail and sometimes they fail spectacularly in that regard. But I just um, I honestly feel like there is is no plan. They're pushing money out. They're not pushing large sums of it out. They don't have, you know, they're, they're known as, as a very rich insurgent group, but they don't have money to burn. No one has money to burn. We don't have money to burn. And so they're very careful on who they're giving money to and what for. And then as I showed you that they've had so many failures, whether it's leadership or even, you know, trying to get people to adhere to their ideological kind of methods, uh, really haven't been successful to, and yet they're still willing to to invest in these. And it, it's really hard to see. I think your Libya example is probably a good one. Uh, it, it's been easy for them to to uh, not only get foreign fighters from um, Libya, but then the back the backflow on that is they actually have influence in Libya, and then have been able to get senior leaders. Like there's senior leaders into Libya. There's rumors that the deputy of the caliph went to Libya, although I've never been able to, to confirm that. And I, I don't really think that it happened, but it could have. Um, so, you know, there is some aspects to, you know, uh, local, but, you know, by that, by that measure, Saudi Arabia should be a really inviting target to them. It's very, it's, it's very close to their current operations and their core in Iraq and Syria, and yet don't see a lot of effort, uh, don't see them trying to force something that can happen. Does that make sense, uh, Chris? Yes, thank you. It does. That answers it. Um, so first we have uh, Mr. Ryan Toll. If you want to go ahead and, and read your question, if not, um, I can read it for you. Yeah, I think I see it in the chat. It's about whether or not they're going to recover from its military defeat in Iraq. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So what, how do you, Dr. White said, you know, what what are IS Corps, so to speak, prospects in its main bases of operation in Syria and Iraq? Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's a great question. I've been studying the group uh, since oh six oh seven and seen them come back from their pretty a pretty solid defeat politically and militarily in Iraq in 2000, that time period, 2007, um, So, you know, their potential is there, certainly more than some people um, give it credit to. Certainly they have quite a bit of operations in Iraq. Uh, some of my students here at NPS who've done theses on, on you know, IS and its history and its future, 
you know, some of them, you know, say like, look, none of the structural conditions in Iraq have changed one bit since 2008. I mean, that's not to say no, nothing's changed, but certainly none of the structural, political, sectarian, financial, um, the the internal political um, aspects, uh, really dysfunctional aspects of the Iraqi government, their ability to provide for citizens, uh, and certainly their interest in reconstructing parts uh, that the Islamic State and the United States and the global coalition have have kind of um, influenced in you know the destruction of Mosul. Let's say. Um, None of those have changed, and in fact, probably in some ways have gotten worse. Really, reinforce some of the advantages or comparative advantages the Islamic State has. They have a lot of attention on them in Iraq and Syria. So the United States is, you know, it's kind of fool me once mentality. The the U.S. is still pretty interested, but we also have, you know, there's a pretty strong pro-Iranian effort that's that's trying to push us out. So, um, you know, I'm going to say I don't know. Um, I think though it's related to this global enterprise is that if you can, if you can, you know, especially with the, not the distractions of great power competition, but the added challenges the U S has right now of dealing with China and a resurgent Russia uh, geopolitically, it creates opportunities in the globe for the, the global brand to kind of take off. But I think, I think they see that as their, their method of getting some of the pressure off of them in Iraq and Syria, right? If we're if we're if we're if we're truly transitioning to Indo-Pakistan, then you know, then they then it should work for them. Uh, because the question is whether or not the Iraqis are either going to care enough to to uh, you know reconstitute its its provinces that it liberated in 2017. You know, which which was a question for me. I wasn't sure they they were really going to to uh you know spend a lot of lives to recapture territory that that so easily kind of broke away from them and did so with some popular support right insurgency's got to have some popular support so i would say you know it really depends on on the larger geopolitical you know, what is the us's future role and and if we are either forcibly disengaged or disengaged voluntarily you know how how well does the, is the iraqi security forces going to be able to handle them uh, that's a pretty that's a pretty open question. I think they're better off than they were in 2014, but um, there's still the same structural problems that are gonna gonna influence the, that particular region, and it's a region they care a lot about. Their leadership's still Iraqi for the most part. Thank you. So up next we have Yehud Barsky. If, if you would like to read your question for Dr. Whiteside, or we can do it for you. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, I wanted to ask. From your study of the ISIS military documents, uh, would you be able to comment on their view of female fighters' uh, development or continued development of female fighters, as well as the child soldiers that they were developing even while the caliphate was still in existence? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great um, that's a great question. Thank you for it. Um, you know, I haven't seen a lot. I haven't seen a lot in the documents. So it's not a topic that they've um the leadership or from the day-to-day -day, the isis files tend to be honest is, is mostly like day-to-day -day, you know unit and, and in these units they don't actually have any women foreign they don't have any women fighters in the particular units that we happen to see so there's a little bit of a convenience sampling going on here of these particular isis files as you can probably imagine you know i think 
Um, my colleague, uh, Mia Bloom, has written about the child soldiers and the impact of that. And I think, um, I'm trying to think, um, an expert on on women fighters would be Nellie LaHood, um, is who I'd point you to, to, to talking about much broader than the ISIS files, which um, didn't really see much in those particular documents as your question um, asks. You know, their general view, and it's not changed, but it, it really does apply to this particular talk in the sense that they're trying to bring that same view to places like Africa where there's, where the cultural norms are different, as you can, as everyone knows, but certainly that impacts this ideology because Islamic states preach largely that women fighting is fine as long as it's an emergency. Otherwise, they have things to do that that they think are better. And certainly they had uh, the Hizbah, the, the Islamic police within occupied territories of the Islamic State is somewhere that they were more than happy to use women in roles they felt were appropriate to uh, to policing the ideology of, or policing the practices of normal citizens. So you see that, um, you see that probably the most prominent, I think, in other ISIS files that I've, I've heard people talk on. And some of the ISIS files, I think there there is a total subset of ISIS files one on policing, which does talk about uh, the role of women in, in the society itself and their ability to approach uh, the government. It's not a military question as you're pointing out, but it does, what I found interesting in that talk uh, that I'd point you to is in the policing, women could come to the, the Islamic police, not the Islamic police, but the Islamic state's police, their regular police, their, their, their law and order police. They could go to them and get favorable results from the the Islamic State's police uh, from a societal perspective, which I found fascinating. The the police the police ISIS files I thought were the most interesting, but they don't really have anything to do with like the military aspects. Uh, but ISIS's general philosophy for for quite some time, to including like 2007, uh, when I was there, was you know when they were in dire straits, then all of a sudden uh, they were sanctioning and condoning. Uh, women suicide bombers quite in quite a few numbers actually um but that's how they frame it and you can see documents that they've pointed that they put out as well as women propagandists of the islamic state have put out saying you know this is the appropriate role for women it's usually in an emergency so when the state the caliphate is is established and being run as a state or a pseudo state um proto-state uh the women's role is is different than like say Bagus, where the state is collapsing and they authorize women to fight, straight up fight. Uh, but that's a short period of time because once it collapses, once the once the leader of the Islamic states made the decision to re return or uh, revert back to a universal insurgency, then that emergency is gone and women go uh, return to more normal traditional roles. They're very important roles, you know, as far as. Uh, sometimes they're couriers. Sometimes they're uh, moving money. Sometimes they're they're doing things that that, that uh, the men can't necessarily get away with. But they're not necessarily fighting roles. Is that? I know that was a long answer. I uh, tried to point you in a couple more productive uh, directions. But does that assist your or does that answer your question at all? Yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate your you appreciate your presentation.
Thank you. And, and if you and if you're if you if you didn't catch who I was pointing you to, just feel free to send me an email. I'll, I'll gladly send you links to uh, the work that I that I mentioned. Thanks. Thank you. Are there any other questions for Dr. Whiteside? Okay, I just have one closing question then. Do it again from your uh, research into the files that we have, the documents that we have. Do we have any sense of how the core senior leadership makes personnel decisions, particularly, we'll use, let's use West Africa, Nigeria as an example. You know, they're kind of stuck with Shakao because he's the one who initially um, makes the Pledge of Allegiance, the Bea, and then they discover that he's not the easiest person to work with and he's kind of to put it nicely, but how do they how do they know who to you know how do they do we have any sense of how they decide these kind of personnel you know who the governor quote unquote of the different provinces are in Khorasan or in West Africa or in um, East Asia? Yeah, uh, Khorasan is a is a good example. Yemen is probably where they've made I didn't mention it, but it's probably where they've made their biggest mistakes. Um, I don't think they know. Right? I I I think a lot of times. They have the same problem that any higher headquarters has in the sense that, you know, a lot they want to defer to, well, unlike, let's say, the U.S. military would probably centralize, selects leaders and then puts them down in a unit and expects them to, to do fine. Here, they really can't do that. Um, so uh, the little bit that I've seen, and again, these type of discussions um, rarely come to light. So I don't, please don't. Um, you know, I'm not trying to, to to say something that I don't know. I'll be very careful and say the little bit that I've seen, um, it is the Islamic State using insiders within the organization to try to shape their decisions. And I think West Africa is the perfect example. So they get a leader, the charismatic leader I mentioned, Chicago, and the, Dr. Anselm in Chicago, and he's quite uh, like any charismatic leader, like his Arkawa is really, you know, must be reminiscent of their own Iraqi dealing with their foreign fighter, um, you know, someone who has a vision, certainly, but it is, he, he also has a little bit of a bloodthirsty image. I mean, he, he's literally cutting people's heads off on, on camera. And so, you know, I think, you know, those, they, they tried to manage that situation and it didn't work for them. Uh, but they were, from what I understand, they were using insiders to to try to shape who the future was, and that those didn't work out. And now they might, if Chicago is out of the way, they supposedly are going to bring back their number one candidate, um, and we'll see. But it's very difficult, I think, for this core organization to manage leadership at the local level um, in an insurgency where um, these local managers are are pretty important. And I mentioned the Jelani uh, debacle that they had as well. So their, their track record on that is pretty poor. Um, and the best I can tell is that they use insiders to try to manipulate uh, and shape and make the decisions for the best. But I, you know, the bad news is that the more they deal with this, the more I think they'll figure out what's going to work for them in these local affiliates. Um, you know, in some cases, like how do, how does, Hapalon become the leader of their East Asia, quote unquote, province is really not a province. I'm not sure it ever really became a province. And certainly they're really just talking about 
their the militants in Mindanao, Abu Sayyaf splinters. You know, how do how do they determine? It's really the local group, I think, that determined um, who that was going to be. And even then, it was a little bit of a shared leadership. But that's not uncommon for them. I mean, um, I showed Abu Hamza, but he was really a co-leader. A foreign fighter co-leader with an Iraqi leader, Abu Umar, and they just kind of split the responsibilities. And that's what worked to help kind of knit that organization together and get them through some pretty tough times on top of leadership decapitation efforts by the U.S. So they have all of these dynamics going on, which makes leadership selection just, you know, I think it's the hardest thing that they do. And it's something that they've failed at quite a bit. Thank you very much. Are there any final questions or the final call for Dr. White? Uh, yes, uh, this is Amin Tazi. I, I just had a, a comment and then uh, I just want to first thank you very much. Uh, on the Khorasan thing, I don't know if you've seen, I, I did uh, research a while ago and then just published a new uh, piece in Encyclopedia Iranica on the usage of Khorasan by the Islamist organizations. If you want, I'll send it to you. In my view, and this is not a deep research of IS specifically, but I think as a whole, the Islamist organizations uh, have misunderstood the Arab side, has totally misunderstood the concept, geographical, historical, and eschatological understanding of what Khorasan means in the Eastern part of the Islamic world, specifically both in Iran and Shia, non-Shia, before Shia, before, but especially in Afghanistan, Central Asia, and North, North Northeast India, and uh, Northwest India, sorry. Uh, the concept is very different. And I think when you look at what how they use it and what they use now, Khorasan, Sarai Khorasan, which is a Shia group in, 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 uh, in Syria and Iraq, there is a misunderstanding. And I think that has cost them a lot of, at least in the, in the information realm. Uh, that said, I'm still worried. I don't know what you think of uh, as we are withdrawing United States and the coalition from Afghanistan, uh, the, the gaps, sorry. the gaps that remain for in Afghanistan. I think uh, I, in ISKP uh, affiliates or foreign governments piggybacking at ISKP is something that I see uh, might become a, a problem in, in, in Afghanistan. But that, I also want to say thanks to everybody. Uh, and I want to just do a shout out, if I may, sir, uh, to General Spies, our, our, it's good to see you there, sir, among us, and, and uh, we missed you, and, and thank you for, for chiming in. Again, Dr. Whiteside, thank you very much. I will send you those Khorasan things if you don't have them. I would love them. Thank you very much. I appreciate that greatly, and that's some great comments. Yes, thank you very much uh, for having me and for, for listening. Appreciate, appreciate what you're doing at MCU. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and Major Brown just has a, a closing comment for us. Uh, note. Yeah, I know. Uh, first off, um, we're very happy uh, to be able to support um, getting the MES lecture series off to a great start with this event. Uh, Dr. Whiteside, thank you very much for your time today. I think we had, it was a fantastic presentation and some good questions. And like I said, I'll do my best to get this out in the next couple of days so we can share it out to uh, everybody who couldn't join us live. Um, for everybody else who's uh, hung with us, uh, we want to note that the uh, the broadcast will be back in the same time slot next week with an episode that we think is special for a couple of reasons. First, it's going to mark the one-year anniversary of the broadcast, which started off with a webcam and a prayer last year at the beginning of COVID. 
and thanks to your support, is now one of our premier programs. And second, on this episode, we're excited to host one of the smartest people I know when it comes to professional writing, military theory, and all things Carl von Clausewitz. Olivia Gerard will be talking about her new book, An Annotated Guide to Tactics, Carl von Clausewitz's Theory of the Combat, newly released by Marine Corps University Press. So we hope to see you all then. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.